Greetings to all again this morning in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Sunday morning, I would say, I usually say that this is the best day of the week when we gather with believers to worship our Lord and Savior. I suppose the service is a bit different this morning, that we're not having Sunday school, but I trust the Lord can minister to us this morning. For the first message, I'd like to consider prayer that Jesus gives us. Open your Bibles to John 17. I feel like we are rich this morning in that we have this prayer recorded. You and I can look at this prayer this morning, a prayer that Jesus prays for the church. I would like to title the message that way this morning. Jesus prays for the church. There's a sense in which this morning, not literally, but figuratively, we ought to be taking the shoes off of our feet. Because we're about to tread on holy ground as we look at this prayer. Precious prayer that Jesus prays for the believer. I think I'll just read the prayer, and I would invite you to stand in reverence to the Word and to this prayer as we read it this morning. John's Gospel, chapter 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I gave, which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me, me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I come out, come out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was in with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou hast given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, 
And these things I speak in the world, that I might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for this, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me, and the glory which Thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and Thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that Thou hast sent me and hast loved them as Thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known thee, that thou hast sent me. I and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thank you. You may be seated. Jesus prays for the church. Jesus, our Lord, was a praying man. He prayed much. Now, we only have a few small snatches or sketches of Jesus praying. We have the model prayer, which we call the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. I'm not exactly sure that that's the right terminology, because Jesus tells his disciples that after this manner, therefore pray ye. So maybe more rightfully, it could be called the disciples' prayer, the believers' prayer, and, and in John 17 is more the Lord's Prayer for the church. We'll leave that. But Jesus does pray several other places. John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. There he prays a short, brief prayer. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just a few words, very short and brief, were recorded. He prays on the cross as well. Just short, brief prayers. Just a few words. But the Bible does tell us in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, that in the morning rising up at a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Early in the morning, before the break of day, he goes to pray, Jesus our Lord does. Another place it says that when he had sent the multitudes away, he departed into the mountain to pray and to be alone with God. Another place in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, it says that he spent all night in prayer. 
Would it not be beautiful to have that prayer recorded and to see what Jesus would have been praying about and for all night long? But we have this prayer. John 17. And Jesus prays for you and I this morning. John 17, a beautiful prayer. Not only does, now in, in the beginning of the prayer, Jesus prays more for himself. And then in verse 9, it kind of shifts where he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. He is praying for the church. These 11 men that were with him at this point in time. As we go through this prayer, you can see how, 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 how the, the passion, his passion, Jesus' passion and burden for the church intensifies and increases as he goes through this prayer. Did you notice that beginning in verse 1, he addresses God as his Father? He comes to verse 5 and he says, Oh, Father. Comes to verse 11 and he says, Holy Father. And then he concludes in verse 25 by saying, Oh, righteous Father. Can you feel the burden of Jesus just intensifying and becoming deeper and deeper as he goes through this prayer? For us to have a good appreciation and understanding of this prayer, it's important that we understand and see the context in which Jesus prays this prayer. So let's just turn back in our Bibles a few pages. John chapter 13. John's Gospel chapter 13, a familiar scripture. There in this upper room, Jesus is surrounded with 12 men. Twelve disciples, followers of Jesus, whom he had selected to follow him. And he has this upper room experience with these twelve men. He washes their feet. And there's a, there's a revelation of what Peter is like here in this upper room experience. Where Peter rash outspoken, he says, no, Lord, you don't wash my feet. And then Jesus reminds him that if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Then he flips completely to the other side, and he says, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. A man of extremes. Verse 21, Jesus begins to tell his, these, these 12 men, he begins to convey the message to them that there's one among you that's going to betray me. Jesus, and thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they began to ask the question, Who is it? Who could it be that would do such an awful thing? John was leaning on Jesus' breast at this time. I believe John was so close to Jesus that he heard the heartbeat of Jesus. And so Peter beckons to him and he says, Could you ask Jesus who this is? 
who would do such an awful, awful thing? And of course, it is revealed who it is, and it's going to be Judas. Then, in verse 30, Judas leaves the scene. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So Judas leaves the scene, and interestingly enough, Jesus mentions Judas in this prayer in John 17. He says he's lost, the son of perdition, ruined and lost eternally. How sad. Verse 33, Jesus uses a very special and endearing term. He says, little children. Yet a little while I'm with you. Little children. I'm going to leave you. He tells his, these children, these disciples, I am going to leave you. Verse 34 talks about that new commandment of love. Then verse 36, Simon Peter again speaking said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee? I will lay down my life for thy sake. I'll lay down my life for your sake, he says. We come to chapter 14. Jesus continues to teach such a beautiful scripture, especially those four verses that most of us know by memory. Well, we are not to allow our hearts to be troubled, to believe in God, and to believe in Jesus also. And, and, he, and he tells them that in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. What was Jesus talking about? Was he saying that I'm going to go to heaven and to build a mansion there for you? No, I don't think so. Because Jesus said, if it, if it weren't already there, I would have told you. But he was on a mission. He was on his way to the cross. And he was going to prepare a mansion for us by going to the cross. Suffering and dying for us. But in verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Thomas was the doubter in this group. He doubted. And we know we could turn to other scriptures where Thomas doubted. He said, I will not believe unless I'm able to touch him. Verse 8, Philip, the slow learner. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus' burden, he says, Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long a time with you yet? Hast thou not known me? Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you understand, Philip, that my Father and I are one? And why are you asking me to show you the Father? Philip was a slow learner. Verse 22. Then it's Judas' turn to speak up. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? I don't understand. 
Why is it that you want to manifest yourself to us, but not the world? Verse 31, it would appear that at this point, they lose the upper room. It says, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father has given me commandment, even so do I. Arise, let us go back. So they're leaving the upper room now, and they're making their way towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we have this beautiful scripture in John 15, the, the fruit and the vine, and the connection there between and the relationship of Jesus and being connected to Him so that we bear fruit. He teaches them, and it's good, there's a good possibility that on their way to the garden that they journeyed through a vineyard. And so Jesus takes the opportunity and just teaches this illustration uh, from, from, the, from the, the vine and the connection to the vine, and that is bearing fruit. Chapter 15 continues to teach there, as, as I said, about the vine. And then 16, he says that there's going to be the coming of the Spirit. But he continues to tell his disciples in verse 5, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you ask of me, Whither goest thou? Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you of a truth, it is expedient, it is needful for you that I go away, so that the Comforter may come. I'm leaving. I'm leaving you, Jesus says. And it is then, of course, in this context that we come to chapter 17. The previous words were words of benediction. Closing words. It's all pressing in on Jesus that he must go now to the, he's going to the cross. And so he prays for these 11 men that had gathered around him, that were around him. And he prays a prayer of benediction. Prays not only for these 11 men, but for the church, for you and I. As I was preparing this message, I thought of a personal experience, and I share this experience only for the glory of God this morning. Back in about 2009, I think it was, there were Germans that were asking us to host a Bible school. And, of course, there in Ireland, we were close to Germany, and they had wanted us to have what they called like an English, English teaching Bible school, because in, in Germany, you are, jobs are much more secure if you have a fluent English language. And not only that, these parents were struggling with their children, with their youth. And they wanted some clear Bible teaching. 
So we consented, and we invited them to send at least 12 or 15 youth. They were from the age of about 10 to 14. And so they sent us these dear youth. And we had a Bible class every morning. We'd spend about an hour, hour and a half with these youth. And in the afternoon, we had, or in, in, no, for the first hour, hour and a half in the forenoon, I would spend a Bible class, and then for another hour or hour and a half, they would spend with an English teacher. We would break for lunch, and we'd have a period of, of playtime in the afternoon, and then we would have various work projects till supper time. Now, it wasn't long, we weren't long into this, this program or this school until we discovered there was still a good bit of, of Adamic nature and carnality in these young lads, these, these, these boys and girls. In fact, by the time we come to the end of the first week, the English teacher said, she came to me and she said, Ed, I don't know if I can handle any more of this. Maybe you should try to find someone else for the last week. And I said, no. We'll try to work something out here, make some changes, We've promised for th that we would, we would do this for two weeks, and we'll, we'll stay with our promise. One afternoon on the playground, there were two young lads that were getting into each other, and it, it got to be so intense that it ended up that they were both on the floor, on the ground, and during the playtime, we were outside, and they were rolling around on the ground and knocking at each other, hitting each other. And one of our sons, who's about six foot one, was in charge of playtime that afternoon, and he simply goes over to those two young lads, and he picks the one up by the one shoulder and the other one up by the other shoulder, and he brings their heads pretty close together, and he puts his head down between their heads. And I don't know what all he told them, but he, he did say enough that they knew that attitude must change if they want to have an enjoyable time on the playground. What I remember most distinctly about that entire event, those two weeks, was the last night. We gathered around a large table. It wasn't the last supper as it was here that Jesus experienced with his 12, but it was the last supper that we were together that, for that experience. And afterwards, I invited the entire group to surround that dining room and to join hands. And we did. And I said, let's pray. Let's just spend some time in prayer. And I'll never forget the feeling that overwhelmed me during that prayer time. I prayed intensely. God, you've given us but two weeks. With two weeks with these lads. There's been a revelation of still so much carnality and endemic nature within them. But just two weeks, and how would two weeks impact their lives? Oh, God, take those seeds and make a difference in their lives. Do you suppose Jesus was feeling the same burden here as he prayed in that upper, or, upper, or prayed this, this last prayer with those 11 men? There's still so much carnality in these men. They're still talking about who would be the greatest. They're talking about, they can't understand, they're still doubting. And God, oh God, hear my prayer. 
Because it is on these 11 men that the church, the genesis of the church is to be built. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. The household of the church of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Was there a reason for Jesus to be burdened? There was. There was. Now let's look at this prayer just a bit more detail now. The first eight verses, Jesus is praying for himself. He is asking God, God, I desire to return to the glory that I had with you before I came to this world. God, would you please restore that pre-existent glory that I had with you before I came into this world? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses talks about that great cloud of witnesses. And then in verse 2 it says something like this, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then it talks about who's for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. What joy? What joy might Jesus have been seeing as he faced the shame of the cross? Do you suppose it was exactly what he was praying about here? Oh God, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And thus, he could see the cross with joy. He saw beyond the shame of the cross. Jesus reminds God the Father in verse 4, he says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have glorified you on the earth. He further says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It is accomplished. It's going to be complete. I'm going to go through with it. It will be done and complete. It will be finished. Verse 6, I have manifested, he says, thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. I have made known. I have declared to them. I have, I have been a witness. I have manifested myself. And then, verse 8, I have given them the word. I've given them truth. I've done what you've called me to do. I've given them truth. And then, would you, he says, restore that glory. He reminds God that he has been an obedient son. He's been an obedient son. Then it shifts, as I said in verse 9, where he prays for the church, for you and I. Praying for, yes, those 11, specifically at that point, but he continues to pray then for the church. The subject of the church is one that I love to preach about. 
so much that could be said about the church, but one of the more impressing things that I've discovered in my study of the church is that of the 117 times you find the word church in the New Testament, 92 of those times, it is specifically talking about the local body of believers, a local assembly. Brothers and sisters of the Bethel congregation here, I want you to know that God is intimately in, uh, involved and working at this local body and assembly of believers. Sometimes we refer to the church, the church at large, or the Catholic church, the church at large. But, but, but in more, more often than not, throughout the New Testament, when, it, when you find the word church, it's talking about a local assembly of believers. That encourages me. Now, when Jesus prays for the church, he does much like or similar to what we do when we pray, when we collectively pray. We did it here this past week. We do it every Wednesday night when we gather for prayer meetings back in our congregation. Whoever's in charge will open it up and we will invite us to share prayer requests. Now, why do we do that? Well, probably several reasons. Because in reality, there's a hundred things that we could pray about. There are so many needs. But, but we, we share our requests because primarily, those are the things that are closest and the dearest to our heart. And so that's what we're going to pray about. Now, we haven't been praying for the situation in Ukraine, Ukraine two or three years ago or five years ago. But the last number of weeks, we've been praying about that situation. Why? Because it's close to our heart. There's a need there. Secondly, when we narrow it down to about a half a dozen or ten things that we can pray about, that we pray about, it allows us to be more intentional as we pray. Now, I find that Jesus did exactly the same thing here in this prayer in John 17. He narrows it down to about four things as it relates to praying for the church. Number one, verse 9 through 18, I pray that although they're not taken out of the world, that they be kept from the world. Secondly, Verse 17 through 20, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thirdly, verse 21 through 23, unity among believers. Oneness. Fourthly, verse 23 through 24, the glory of the believers. The glory of the believers. These four things were heavy on the heart of Jesus our Lord as he prayed this prayer of benediction. Let's just look at this briefly. And each one of these could be a message in themselves. We do not have that time this morning. In the world, but not of the world. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, 
but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Would it not have been so beautiful that in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus was standing there with these 11 men, and as these 11 men were surrounding, surrounding Jesus and, and, and he was telling them, he was giving them that great commission that they are to take the gospel message to Samaria, Judea, to the uttermost, or to Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. And all at once, as they were standing there, Jesus begins to go up, up, and up to a cloud. And they stand there gazing at Jesus, and would it not have just been so beautiful if those 11 men could have just begun to go up, up, and up through that cloud? After all, Jesus had prayed in his prayer that he had kept them. Although there was still a good bit of carnality there, they had been kept. They were not like the son of perdition who was lost. So why not just take them with him? No, that was not the plan. I pray not that thou wouldest take them out of the way, but that thou wouldest keep them from the evil that is in the world. Friends, I really believe this morning with all my heart that if we could just somehow get a, get a vision and a grasp of why we're in this world, the hankering to become after, to follow after this world would become strangely dim. Why did Jesus leave these 11 men in the world? He, he tells us in his prayer. Let's just look at verse 19 and 20. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through, thy, through the truth. Neither pray for these alone, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word. There's our mission. Jesus prayed that these 11 men would stay in the world that they might tell others and those others might tell others and those others might tell others. And this morning, you and I sit here rich and blessed because others have told One of my dear friends, Catholic brother, when he first discovered that I was a preacher, he, of course, asked me if hands were laid upon me when I was ordained. And I said, yes, they were. Because he, he questioned the validity of, of my ministry. Well, at least he didn't say that, but, 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 but that was probably some of his thoughts. And I didn't know at the time how much emphasis is put on apostolic succession? Because this man, in his mind, and he understood that Anabaptists come or their roots go back into the Catholic Church. So, so, so if, if, if someone laid hands on me, there's a good possibility that, that the succession goes way back, way, way back, even to Peter, the Pope. Friends, 
I'm not making much, I don't make much of apostolic profession as it relates to laying on of hands. That's the feeling. But right here we have apostolic profession where you and I, Jesus prays that we pass on to the next generation, to others, to others, and to others the gospel message. That was a burden of Jesus. Secondly, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus understood, and I'll say more about this later in the next message, but that in the last days, there would be lots of unsound doctrine, and it weighed heavy on the heart of Jesus. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word. Thirdly, then, unity among believers. Unity among believers, oneness. Jesus prays that there could be oneness like the oneness in relationship between himself and the Father. How can it be? Jesus over and over says, I and my Father are one. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He just makes it clear that, that they were one. My brothers, how can it be that there can be that kind of unity within the church? Dare I say that needs to be a goal. That needs to be a journey that we're on. To become unified as believers. To become one. We live in, in, a, in, a, in a culture, in a world that, 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 is, that has, has fed individualism. I am my own. You are your own. You do as you like. I do as I like. It militates against unity and brotherhood within the church. I found it interesting. Right through the middle of the pandemic, I had started before the pandemic started, but I was preaching at the whole congregation on the seven ordinances of the church. I took one ordinance for, 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 for each message, for, for seven in succession, there are seven, seven messages that I preached. And it was right during the heart of the pandemic. And I began to see that it's pretty difficult for a church to observe the ordinances of the church at a six-foot distance. Brothers and sisters, somehow, we're going to have to get closer to each other than six foot if there's going to be unity among us. In fact, so close that the rough edges kind of rub the tide. Recently, a friend of mine was telling me that they were bidding a job, and they build large steel structures. I think they built some that even covered up to two acres. But they were building a church house. He said they were bidding on a church house. 
And he said it's unlike any church house that it would have ever built before. A large roof that covered the entire parking lot with a glass cube up front with a pulpit in it. This congregation decided that they kind of liked the idea of drive-up church. And so from now on, they're going to have church in a parking lot. They'll drive in, hear a message, or go home. Sad. Sad. We're going to have to get closer to each other and park cars if we're going to have unity among believers. And Jesus prayed intensely that there could be unity among believers. If you study some of Paul's writings, you'll discover that various churches had issues that they had needed to deal with. The, Cor- the church at Corinth, they had issues. The church at Philippi, the Philippians church, they had issues. And one of the issues at that church was unity among He invites them to be of the same mind, to be of the same rule, to be of the same boundary. That's what that means. Unity among believers. And I I would be quick to say this morning, there can be ever so much uniformity in a church without the spirit of unity. That is possible. But I wonder if the other is possible. Well, there is truly a spirit of unity. There's going to be some kind of like-mindedness. Where we work, where we're able to work together as a body. Point number four. And I love this one. Jesus prays for the glory of the believers. That's you and I. He prays that we too might share with him in that pre-existent glory that he had with the Father. Verse 23 to 24, he says, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, in that in I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may be that behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. We are invited to share with him in that pre-existent glory. That's beautiful. Glorification is the last part of our salvation experience. First of all, there's regeneration. And secondly, there's presence of sanctification. And finally, there's glorification. Glorification. Glory. The idea of glory manifests itself or is seen throughout this prayer. We find it a number of places. I think eight times, if I'm not mistaken. 
Well, Jesus uses the word glory or glorify or glorify. Glory. What was Jesus talking about? I believe glory, the idea of glory and glorification, were the cords that surrounded this prayer in John 17. Because he begins the prayer by talking about the glory that he had with the Father and desiring to go back to the Father and share with him in that glory. Then in the closing of the prayer, he says he desires that the church, you and I, would share with him in that glory as well. The pre-existent glory. We talk about glory. The glory of God. What are we talking about? What does that mean? There are two things that are always manifested when the glory of God is present. Number one, God's presence. And secondly, God's power. Where the glory of God is seen, God is present and God's power is there. We could look at a number of scriptures. I won't take the time this morning. Just a few, just to mention a few. In Exodus chapter 14, they had that miraculous experience of crossing the Red Sea. And then Moses writes a song. And in that song, he says in verse 1, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Verse 6, he says, the right hand Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. There you had both the presence of God in a cloud that took them across that sea. You had the power of God in the opening of that sea. And thus it was glorious, a glorious experience. There are a number of other places in the New Testament where it talks about glory. The glory of God being present. And you find Jesus there, and you find the power of God through a miracle in that glorious experience. Yes, we are to be changed from glory glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed from glory to glory. The Bible talks about the resurrection in 1 first, in first Corinthians 15. There it says, there's a a glory of the sun, there's a glory of the moon, there's a glory of the stars. There's a glory of the celestial, there's a glory of the terrestrial. But we're being changed from glory to glory. May God help us as we consider this prayer. Jesus, our Lord, intensely prays for the church.